it's more once you get there, what you do with it, right? Right? It's like just because you went to Harvard doesn't automatically mean, oh, this person went to Harvard, we're just going to automatically promote them and they're going to be this next CFO. It doesn't work that way. One, two, Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Dapper Dollars podcast, where we answer your finance questions, but a bit with style. I'm your co-host, Anirban Belmick, and we also have... Hi, everyone. I'm George Anakwe, and today we're going to be talking about demystifying graduate school. We hope that this is a conversation our audience and listeners, we want to get to hear about just like the myths and busting those myths around wanting to go to that, getting that advanced degree. So stay tuned and listen. Thank you. So today we have the pleasure to introduce Linda Ford Fairtrace. She was the director of the AT&T Finance Leadership Development Program and where she oversaw the recruitment and development of the recent college and MBA graduates. That's where we all three met and we were recruited through Linda Ford uh, for the prestigious program. Linda also holds a bachelor's degree in finance and MBA and management. So welcome, Linda Ford, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and it's great to see you both. So to start us off, uh, we'll start off with a fun icebreaker question. So um, the let's just say you won the lottery and you had one ten million dollars hit your bank account. What would you do with that money? Okay, well that is a fun question to start with because I think you'll see a little bit about my money style when I answer it. So the first thing I know this might be hard to believe, but I actually don't play the lottery because I've always felt like it's kind of a waste of money. <laughs> So with that being said, I can't say that I've never thought about, oh my gosh, if I won $10 million, what would I do with it? So I have thought about it, especially there was a big lottery drawing just recently. And as I was thinking through it, probably my wild dream would be is I'd love to build like a beautiful beach home on a tropical island with a private golf course. So that would be what I would do initially with the money. But as I really think about it, that's a lot of money. So I would also think about writing down all my family members and my friends, and I would want to pay off all their debt. So I wouldn't pay off their mortgages and their car payments because I'm really big about getting out of debt. And of course, I'd want to pay off all of our debt as well. And then I would also want to think about how I could give back you know, to society. So I would set up some type of foundation where you could definitely make sure that that money continues to grow and give to the future generations. And I would, you know, be behind some, you know, causes like Wounded Warrior, the Humane Society, and even victims of domestic violence. So that is probably what I would do if I won $10 million. That's always interesting to hear. I appreciate you sharing that because everybody has their own use of money. And it kind of goes back to what you were asking, like, what does money mean to you? So thanks for sharing. I agree. Uh, I, I, I think it also speaks um, volumes basically to um, the kind of person you are, because believe me, we ask a lot of people that question. And again, it varies. And this is the first time I've heard that that's all response. So thank you. So I guess we sort of just jump um, straight to to admit then. So um, I guess st- starting off, um, you know, we know a growing non- non- number of um, employers, basically, they are constantly highlighting the importance of like critical soft skills. And, um, such as like emotional intelligence, um, being resilient, being, being able to learn to as well. Um, so they sort of cite these skills as like, you know, um, 
determinants for like performance evaluation. And, you know, so again, we know from our experience because we and both have MBAs, um, we all three have MBAs and these are, this sort of correlate to like a graduate credential. And so we know you ran the AT&T FLDP program for over three decades. And what is your rationale behind this? Um, basically, do, do you mind sharing? Sure. So, yeah. So, of course, you know, the critical analytical skills are so important, especially for a position in the finance organization. But to your point about our decision to um, go more towards MBA hiring, I think the MBA, when you couple that with previous work experience, um, that type of talent does bring both the analytical skills, but also those emotional skills that you mentioned. And I might even add a few to that, which are also important. Things like intellectual curiosity, collaboration, communication skills, and leadership skills, right? So I think those are all, you know, part of that emotional intelligence and also um, the types of things that make people better leaders, right, moving forward. So... The other thing I think that's really important is culture fit. So, you know, being able to apply those soft skills and those analytical skills to the culture and making sure it's a fit for both the employee and the employer. And again, a lot of those skills are developed in graduate school and through previous work experience. So for a time at AT&T, we were actually using a um, personality uh Test, which is a personal characteristics inventory from Hogan. And what we were trying to do is actually figure out how we could identify candidates that brought those type of skills to the table. Because sometimes in interviews, you can use behavioral interviews, you can use you know, business cases like we did at AT&T, but we were trying to get at that piece of it, right? Like how do you actually identify that in a, in a you know, an employee, potential employee? And by using those types of assessments, we had identified the skills that we thought were most important to be successful in the role, to be a successful future leader. And then we applied those types of questions to the testing. However, what we found was that it takes many years and a big data set to be statistically significant to actually say that this data was a true predictor of, you know, that the talent of it having those characteristics. So unfortunately, we did not stick with it, but I do think that it is an important component and trying to figure out how you identify those types of skills. Um, and also with AT&T, as you both may recall, um, is that when we measure performance, it was based not only on what you did, but how you did it. And the what is the, the significant objectives, right? Like, increasing revenue, decreasing expenses, you know, something very concrete. But the how was really about those leadership competencies and those, you know, emotional intelligence types of issues that you mentioned, George, where, you know, we want to measure both of those things, again, because we think in total, that is really what makes a very solid leader. Um, so we're talking about you know, going into the interview process, but also before that, um, people are having to get that graduate degree. And I think we've kind of discussed this before where the current environment, uh, it's a little uneasy because of the economy and then the market recession and um, maybe finance can, can be a little tough. So with that current environment I mentioned, um, you know, what can you give advice for people who are looking for advanced degrees, but not want to really cough up that expensive um price tag, you know, that that's tied to an MBA. 
Sure. Well, the way I did it, which probably did take some of those factors into consideration, is because I was working for a company like AT&T, we did have tuition reimbursement as a benefit. So that to me was the most cost effective way for me to get a master's degree because I continued to work, right? So I continued to get my salary. Um, AT&T also did reimburse us for successful completion of the different courses associated with our master's degree or any relevant degree that you might go for, but mine was the MBA. So um, that to me was, for me, was the, the most economical way for me to do my MBA, though it took me longer. Um, so that was probably a disadvantage, but at the same time, you know, I still felt like because I was getting business experience while I was going for my MBA, I think that's really when the MBA tends to be the most valuable, you know, is when you're combining your work experience with your business, like academic and being able to apply them both. So that was what was best for me. But I do know, like, as far as other ways to get an MBA, there are many options. I have seen where some undergrads, especially when the job market wasn't good, I can say that this was more um, something I saw more often, was undergrads, because the job market wasn't good, they just stayed and continued on to get their MBA, right? So it was more like a five-year program because they didn't feel that they could, they were able to get a job right away. So they got that five-year undergrad MBA combo. And the only disadvantage I see to that is that you're not applying so much business and work experience to that MBA. So I'm not sure if it's as valuable as, again, combining the work experience with the MBA. But that is one thing that I've seen when economic times have been where the job market wasn't good, right? So that would be one example. Another example that I've seen is there are times that companies will offer um, like high potential talent, the executive MBA option, right? Where they really identify somebody within the organization that like, hey, this person has a lot of potential. Um, we don't want to lose them to go back for their MBA. So we're going to sponsor them for an executive MBA. And that's a lot of time and effort. You know, you're going a lot of times on Saturdays. You're maybe using vacation time to go back to, you know, school to kind of do some more um, intensive studying or intensive projects or whatever it might call for. But it's usually more of a condensed MBA. Um, and again, you're, conti you're continuing to work, so you're still getting your compensation, you're still getting your salary. The company is paying you, you know, paying for your master's through the executive MBA program. It's typically about a year. And the only um, downside, and I'm not even sure it's a downside, but you may have to make a commitment to the company that you're going to stay a certain period of time after you get that executive MBA. So I've seen it go that, that route. And probably the route that uh, I know both of you had went was the full-time MBA. So, you know, I think that also if you, you know, do your return on the investment and you can afford to take time off from work, maybe you've saved money, you know, because you knew you wanted to go back to school and just prepare for that. Or of course, there's always student loans. Um, that's also a really good way to get an MBA. And um, it just depends if you can, can swing that or not because you're giving up your salary, right, for those two years. So we often see, as you both know, between your first year and second year in the MBA program, typically you are going to get an internship. So you will get a little bit of an influx of cash during that period. Um, this is also during summer intern, a great opportunity to try out a company or um, maybe decide it is or isn't for you. Um, I know with our program at AT&T, we used our summer intern program for the first year MBAs 
very much as a feeder pool for the full-time program. So if you did intern with us, you could potentially come back as a full-time hire, you know, and have that job offer before you go back to school. So that's also a big plus. And probably one of the biggest pluses of doing the full-time MBA, and we did focus mostly on recruiting that type of talent for the program, is you see a bigger salary jump, right? Because, and especially if you're going from like corporate finance to corporate finance. I mean, sometimes if you co- you're coming out of financial services or consulting, you know, even with that undergrad, the MBA jump might not be as much, especially if you're going from those industries to corporate. But with that being said, you do see the biggest jump. So for example, like when I did my MBA at night, when I finished, there was no jump in salary. You know, maybe I got a promotion or maybe I advanced to another level eventually. But I think when you come out of that full-time MBA program is when you see a very nice bump in your compensation. And you, you know, you two may be able to even speak to that more, but that's what I would typically see when people go the full-time MBA route. Thanks for walking us through the, all those options. And yeah, it's very insightful. One thing I've noticed has um, been getting popular, at least in the data science space or data analytics space, and which is a skill set that's been uh, highly preferable in the job market. Um, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on these data boot, boot camps or different kind of boot camps? It's kind of like trade school, but it's more of a condensed format of it. Um, how is that for recruiting? Yeah. So like a certificate program, maybe, or something like that, where you're not quite going back for a full MBA, but you're able to condense that into a some type of certification. I think truthfully, marrying like a finance background with data analytics is, you know, a skill set that's very much in need. So um, if I was thinking about doing that, probably um, one of the questions that I would ask of the institution that might be offering that certification is to understand what their partnerships might be with different corporations or, you know, what their success rate is helping people to get jobs and what those that compensation might look like to be able to um, to make sure you're leveraging whatever this, that institution is offering to make it the best option for you to move your career forward. So that would be like probably one thing that I would really want to know before I jumped into a certification. But like if that's I think that's that's a, that's a great avenue to go down or a great idea, you know, to do something like that. And I think it can be extremely um, marketable, especially because that is a skill set that's very much needed right now. Yeah, I agree. So um, I, I really do appreciate it. I guess I want to tap on just what you said. So unpack the part, the fact that the fact that you where you had a full-time job and you were still doing your, your MBA. So I know a lot of people, most of the, um, so they kind of played the devil's advocate with themselves and they look at the work-life balance, basically, hey, I have a family, you know, I'm starting to like, you know, really get into the swing of, of my job. So how were you able to actually make it work? I mean, I, I, I don't know how long that MBA program was for, but for all those nights and the study time, can you share like how you were able to make that work? Sure. Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, the first thing is it took me about five years to do it. And at the time I was still in my twenties. So I didn't have other responsibilities so much to like family and children and things like that. So I think that made it probably more doable. I'm the type of person I'm very good at um, time management and I'm the type of person more I have on my plate, the better I do. So I was able to, to manage it, you know, and to balance it um, because of my personality. But you're right. I mean, there are other pressures and responsibilities. So 
my, I guess my only thought, if you're thinking about doing an MBA part-time, I would try to do it sooner rather than later before you end up with a lot of those other responsibilities, but that would just be my perspective. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, so I guess I, I, I go to my next question. So, you know, with the current um, competitive environment, basically for graduate programs like MBAs and masters and PhDs. Uh, so we know this is sort of a big unspoken elephant in the room, but um, it's the costly, it's the costly price tag of, of an Ivy League uh, worth it, basically, especially when you conduct like a personal uh, ROI. You look at like, hey, do I go take on this crazy additional debt? And like, you know, is this going to advance me in the right way? I mean, so you have been in the situations where you've sort of witnessed people who have come from different sides and can you share like a perspective on them that? Sure. Yeah. I actually have some interesting uh, thoughts on Ivy League only because I've had some experiences with that at AT AT&T and recruiting from Ivy League. So first of all, you know, if you have the ability to get into an Ivy League program, you know, it's certainly, you know, not everyone can get in. It's very competitive. And it's hard not to go, right, if you get that opportunity. But, of course, you do have to look at the, you know, the ROI of doing something like that. But I think all graduate school is expensive right now. Probably Ivy League is maybe, you know, not that much more than some of the other schools at this point. But with that being said, you know, um, I'll tell you a little bit, of a little story, I guess. Um, so I've worked for four different CFOs with under AT&T, right? And our second CFO, when he joined AT&T, had come from another company outside. And the company he had come from very much recruited Ivy League MBAs. That's what he knew. That's what he was comfortable with. They had a lot of success with it. So he comes to AT&T. He calls me to his office. And he wants to understand how, you know, our finance leadership program works where we're recruiting, you know, so I went through and at that time we had a dual track program. We had undergrads and MBAs. Um, We were going to good business schools, but not Ivy League. And he was very perplexed. Like he couldn't understand why a company like AT&T was not recruiting at Ivy League schools, like, you know, very prestigious institution like AT&T, we should be. So it was August and he's like, okay, I want to pivot and I want us to start going to Ivy League schools September. So it was a challenge. And, you know, we went to the top MBA schools, you know, uh, Harvard, Columbia, Cornell, NYU, um, Wharton, just to name, you know, kind of oh University of Chicago. I think those were pretty much the ones that we were focused on. And it was during the dot-com bust, which was an interesting job market because the job market wasn't as strong for the MBAs because we were dealing with, or they were dealing with that as part of the job market. And at that time, you know, that was really the, the cool place to go, right? Go to the dot, dot com type companies. So AT&T would have looked a little, maybe not as exciting, though that we are truly, I mean, AT&T is truly a technology company, but at the time it wasn't as maybe sexy as dot com, right? So because of the dot com bus, we actually had a lot of success. I mean, we did recruit a very, you know, capable, strong MBA class to come into the finance leadership program. The CFO was happy, you know, so we, you know, did our best and we got the talent in. I can say once the talent got to us, there might have been a little bit of a mismatch on expectations, right? So you're coming into a finance program and I could say that one of the um, new hires that we had, he came down soon after and he said, I can't believe I have to do Excel spreadsheets. 
I was like very taken back by that. So I'm like, well, it is a finance leadership program. I remember where he was sitting. It was sitting in corporate financial planning. It was a good role. You know, we tried to make sure the roles were MBA, you know, conducive to that talent pool. And it just, it was a really challenging group to work with. And I could say it's partly the AT&T culture in the sense that when we bring people into our leadership programs, you know, we want them to roll up their sleeves, kind of get immersed into the business you know, we will hopefully, you know, get you through your rotations and you can, you know, add value and learn and, you know, get to that next level of leadership. But you had to kind of start, I don't want to say at the bottom, we didn't start them at the bottom, but, you know, kind of, you know, where an analyst, you know, senior analyst type role. So with that being said, you know, we did have a lot of attrition, especially once the economy started improving. You know, we were New Jersey based at the time. They had a lot of options going to Wall Street, not too far from where we were located. So we did have a lot of attrition. So I can't say it, the strategy worked perfectly because of that. But at the same time, a lot of talented people. I just think that expectations and culture, that wasn't a super good fit for us. But like going to these Ivy League M- MBA programs, certainly, you know, consulting, investment banking. I mean, they, they love that, right? That's what, that's their, what they're looking for. So that's kind of one side of the story. But the other side of the story is then when SBC merged with AT&T and SBC purchased AT&T, SBC was in touch with me to talk about, you know, our recruiting strategy and where we were recruiting and all of these things. So I explained to them, you know, because of who I was working for, for the CFO at the time, you know, he was really big on the tier one MBA Ivy League schools. And I explained to them, to them, all of that. And SBC came back to me and said, oh, no, that won't work for us. Like they were opposed to going to the Ivy League schools because they didn't feel it was a good culture fit. So they had already made those determinations that, you know, they felt for the company and the culture that wasn't necessarily the right places to go. So again, really good talent. I, you know, but the other thing is like, for me, like an Ivy League MBA, you know, it gets your foot in the door. You probably, you know, you will probably have lots of opportunities, you know, certainly demands maybe higher compensation, but it's, it's more once you get there, what you do with it, right? Right. It's like, just because you went to Harvard doesn't automatically mean, oh, this person went to Harvard, we're just going to automatically promote them and they're going to be this next CFO. It doesn't work that way, right? Because you have, you know, you have to come in, prove yourself, do a good job, be able to do, work on all those things we talked about, like those soft skills, bring all that to the table, leadership. And, you know, so, you know, so I'm kind of on the fence with it. But, you know, again, if you have the opportunity, great. And it works for your finances. I think, you know, you can't go wrong. Um, but it it's not a necessity, but it de- really depends on the company. And But like the last thing I want to mention, and this was interesting because I after I thought about that a little bit, I went back and looked at people who graduated from FLP. Again, I had 20 years of running the program, different talent coming in. And I'm like, hmm. I wonder if I did like a little analysis on it, the, you know, and again, I don't remember everyone, but you know, I'm still friends with a lot of people on LinkedIn or connected through there. So I found that there are three graduates of AT&T's FLP that um, are CFOs at Fortune 500 companies. And I went back and I looked at their profiles because I don't, I sometimes remember where people went to school. Sometimes I have to remind myself, but so one person graduated from Harvard so, and she had been an undergrad. She came in through the undergrad track. AT&T had paid for her to go get her MBA at Harvard at the time. Um, she came back for a while and then left, but she's a CFO at a Fortune 500. Another person, 
CFO of Fortune 500 came from, uh, went to Columbia, kind of same thing, came in through the undergrad track, got his MBA, came back, and then eventually went on to be a CFO. And then our third one came from Texas Christian University. So two out of the three were Ivy League, one wasn't. So that's just my little, <laughs> my little project that I did for myself. Hey, if you've made it this far into this episode, George and I want to give you a big thank you. It means a lot to us that you find our content valuable. And it will mean the world to us if you can share this episode with your family and friends. That would help this episode and future episodes discovered by many others who find this as valuable as you did. Again, thank you. And let's get back to the episode. That, that is actually, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And I, I, I really appreciate how you kind of be able to break down that rationale because I feel it's such a bone of contention, especially when you, you are in spaces where people are talking about, hey, I want to go to this school versus that, that school. I, in the end, I think it's just, what do you bring to the table? Uh, I've been in rooms with people who, who did not even go to an Ivy League, but they outperformed. Uh, like, you know, by, by miles, basically, because in the end, I think it's just what is your potential and how far you can push yourself. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. So our podcast name is the Dapper Dollars Podcast. So uh, with the emphasis on Dapper, um, I wanted to ask you a more of a fashion question, but in the work environment. Um, now that we've entered in, in more of a hybrid work model where some days you're going to be behind the camera, but still interacting with your coworkers and colleagues, um, how would you recommend going about those dress codes? Um, let's also not only recommend or not only talk about in the meetings, but also uh, in interviews. Well, I'll start with the interviews. So I do a lot of interviewing. I did a lot. I still do. And with COVID, of course, now more and more is done, you know, through video. We're, you know, talking to candidates all over the country. So it's very convenient to do interviews in this manner. And I have found over time, people have gotten a lot more casual, right? That I guess we've all gotten used to, you know, either working from home or, you know, just being on camera and not being in the office. But I would say for an interview, I definitely would advocate for continuing to dress professionally at a minimum for an interview, business casual, but I would even slant towards being overdressed versus underdressed. I think it just leaves a better impression. I'll be honest with you. When I see a candidate has actually dressed up for the interview, like he was coming into the office, you know, suit and tie, you know, it just, it just gives them a whole different, I don't know, per, like I get a different perspective on them and it just shows that they are really interested in the position. They wanted to put their best foot forward. Um, so I like that. I'm fine with people being business casual also for interviews. And likewise, I think I need to be dressed appropriately because I'm representing a company that, you know, when I'm interviewing, I want to make sure that I'm also, you know, representing the company in a professional way. So that to me is kind of, I shouldn't say kind of important, but very important. So I would say business casual at a minimum, but I would err on the side of overdressed versus underdressed. As far as the internal meetings, I mean, I definitely can see that that has become more relaxed and probably you don't have to be as, you know, professionally dressed. But at the same time, I still think you should be, you know, business casual. I mean, you only need business casual from here up, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you can, I don't care what's on the bottom part. We don't see that. So, <laughs> so that, that would be my thought. But, you know, again, I think it should be on both both parties ends. And, and, you know, there used to be like some thoughts when people were thinking about advancement and promotions that you want to dress one or two levels higher than your current level. So 
take a look. How is our, you know, the VP dressing, you know, when he comes on these Zoom meetings or these WebExes or whatever, right? So just see how they're presenting themselves because I think you can also take a lead from from them as to if I want to get to that next level or two levels, how is, you know, how are they presenting themselves? Hey, and just a quick note, um, if you could clarify for guys and girls, what is defined as business casual? Because yeah. everybody's perspective, business casual, it, it varies from a different spectrum, right? Yeah, that's a good point. It's funny because I remember at at and I think we came, we had like ended up with four dress codes before I left. We had, <laughs> perfect, you know, per- business, business casual, smart casual, and then casual. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember one of my managers at at and sent us examples of what those four categories would look like <laughs> for both men and women. So <laughs> that, that just is funny and from, you know, when I think about that. I mean, everybody has their own definition. So for men, for business casual, I like a blazer and like a button down shirt, Not maybe not necessarily the tie. Or I see for even business casual, some people don't wear the jacket, but they might wear the tie with a dress shirt. I think for for men, that to me is an okay look for, you know, what I would consider business casual, maybe even airing on the side of more business, closer to business, especially for the interviews. For women, I think we should, you know, for business casual and especially for an interview, I would be in a blazer, you know, an appropriate blouse. Um, And I guess that's how I would envision it for interviews. And then for meetings, again, I think it depends on, you know, your work group and what the meeting is and what's appropriate dress for that. And I think you could always, you know, dress a little down for maybe those internal meetings. But again, if you're looking for advancement, making, you know, because you're not in the office anymore, right? Or we're starting to turn to go back into the office, but you don't have those opportunities so much to make an impression in the office as much sometimes. So you have to make your impression on camera, right? And maybe it's how you dress is making that better impression versus the person that's showing up in, you know, a sweatshirt. I like that. I've seen some um, some YouTube videos of like behind the scenes Zoom calls and you just like it will blow your mind away just for what people wear to meetings and just what happens afterwards. So I appreciate that. And and, and so uh, I know, you know, when we were sort of having conversations regarding, you know, you being on this episode, you had mentioned like just like how really into like, you know, reading and thirsting for like financial knowledge and literacy the right way. So uh, can you can you share with us and with our listeners, like what's one book that changed your life and why? So I, w- I came down to two books. I'm going to talk about the book that changed my life, but I'll, it, I have time. And if you want, I'll also talk about a book I typically recommend to others, especially when it comes to career and things like that. So the book that changed my life um, it's called uh, Your Money or Your Life. And it, I was trying to remember who wrote it. So it was Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez. Unfortunately, Joe Dominguez is deceased, but Vicki Robin is still alive. And she's written actually an updated version of the books. I read it many years ago, but it's called Your Money or Your Life. And I really like the original book. I haven't read her updated book, but it really talks about how you transform your relationship with money and achieve financial independence. And because I went to school for finance, like that was always like something I was very passionate about. And I felt very strongly about as we, when you, when you had mentioned like, what does money mean to you? To me, it always meant security. So, you know, I wanted to make good money decisions and I've always been very passionate about it. I'm very passionate about people being educated and understanding their finances and how it applies to their life 
and living within their means. And this book just really spoke to me because it talks about exchanging your life energy for money, right? So I think Georgia gets to your point where we were talking about like work-life balance and, you know, how much time do you want to put into your work? You're exchanging your life energy for money, right? And like, we all have to figure out what that balance looks like. But I think if you have good money habits where, you know, do you need that or do you want it, right? So like, yeah, you have to use money for your needs, right? For shelter, for food, you know, things that you really need. But like, do you really, you know, you may just want that, you know, super expensive car or, you know, where you could get by with a less expensive car, right? And not maybe have a car payment. So the book just really talks about, you know, making decisions around money and your life and what's most important. And I just felt that that, is the way I've kind of lived my life in trying to make good money decisions and educating myself and, you know, being able to set myself up, you know, for retirement and, you know, living a a life that I feel is, you know, within balance of what I want to do from a work-life balance perspective as well. Uh, Okay. And I think you had mentioned two. So what would the second one be? Okay. So because I do a lot of career coaching and I think career and finances, obviously, just come together, right? Because, you know, if you have a good career, you probably make good money. And if you like your career, you probably, you know, get more satisfaction out of it. But um, when I'm doing a lot of career coaching, the book that I recommend is What Color Is Your Parachute by Richard Bowles. And it, it, it talks about, you know, especially for people, you know, who are starting out in their career or don't, you know, want to maybe switch careers, right? Um, it talks about, um, you know, has some exercises that lets you explore like what your interests are. It talks about um, your transferable skills. So you maybe have worked in this area, but you want to get into something else. And there's so many skills that transfer, you know, even though it might not be the same job, but you want to go do something different. It's like what you do and where you do it. Like, so you might be doing finance, but that's the, you know, what I do, but where you do, it could be so many different industries. So where are your interests? It talks a lot about networking and informational interviews and social media. And that book gets updated very regularly because obviously things change in the market. But um, that, I think, is a really good book for people who are, you know, in the, you know, starting in their career, making career changes, you know, trying to figure out what they want to do. That would be the other book that I'd recommend. So those are, are two of my favorites. Oh, wow. That is that is brilliant. I, I appreciate you sharing that, especially regarding that book, because I do a lot of mentoring within the HBCU space. A lot of students who are looking to like go to that next step. And so this will really be a good book. So I'm definitely going to check it out. I agree, especially with the if it's, it's like as exercises, I think that's much more of an engagement sort of way rather than just taking it in. And but then not, not <laughs> make an action of it. Right, right. There are a lot of exercises that, yeah, you can go through in the book and it helps you kind of come to some kind of action plan. Hey, I, I just want to bring up a, a quick, fun question. Um, we've we've asked this to other people as well, but I wanted to see how you go about this. Um, if um, And you might know the answer to this, actually. So you have two decisions. Uh, you can only choose or there's there's two choices and you have one decision you can make. Um, you're given either the choice of taking the million dollars right now up front, or we provide you a penny and then it doubles every day for the next 30 days. Which option would you go with? 
I think the penny probably comes out to the higher number, right? <laughs> you called I, it. I didn't do the math, but I'm <laughs> just assuming. Well, I mean, because I am a big advocate for like time value of money and things like that. So <laughs> is that the right answer? Yeah, yeah. So actually it equates to like 5.36 million. So yeah, yeah. Like five. I wasn't going to do the math that fast, but I figured that, <laughs> that probably was the answer. <laughs> And I think that that just shows it to the people like people who understand finance or at least they've familiarized themselves with it that like what you said, the time value value money and then the compounding effect and yeah, all all that just really um, the delay gratification concept, you know, all that really encompasses into that, that answer choice. Right. Absolutely. And when you're starting out in your career and you have, you know, benefits baby at a company and a 401k and a match, I always tell people put in up to if you can put in as much as you can up to the match because you're leaving free money on the table. So don't do that. And, you know, and dollar cost average into the market, diversify. You know, I'm telling you, like I started, you know, at AT AT&T, you know, in my 20s, you know, left in my 50s. And it's amazing how much money was able to be accumulated with all of those principles. And I always give everyone that advice as well. Uh, Can we invite you to a coaching class one time? Sure. Absolutely. Anything you want me to do. I, I'm so passionate about this topic. I was so thrilled that you asked me to come and, and participate. And, you know, it's it's been so much fun to catch up with you both. I mean, I I always have a big heart, place in my heart for all of the FLDPs and AT&T. And, you know, I, so I always would love to be engaged with all of you and help in any way that I can. So absolutely. that's awesome. Uh, I, we really appreciate that. We were really happy to have you on. Uh, it, it, again, like you said, it's it's been awesome to catch back on it. Mm-hmm. Even though this is more of an episode, but it's been nice to just reconnect in this this sort of fashion. Yep, and I want you to tell everybody I said hi if they don't get to see this episode, but, and I miss everyone. <laughs> so, if um, anybody wants to reach out to you or stay connected with you, how can they do that? Sure. Well, I am on LinkedIn, so I have gotten married since I left AT and T. So most people know me as Linda Ford, but you can find me on LinkedIn at Linda Ford Fairtrace. And be happy to connect again with anyone. Any way I can help you, you know, would love to be involved either through this venue or just directly back to me. Thank you. And congrats on your marriage. Yeah, thank you. Finally, to the listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. If you found this episode helpful, it would really help us out if you can leave us an honest five-star review on your favorite podcast listening platform. Also, it will be awesome if you can share this episode with your family and friends. That would help gain traction for this episode and our channel. And finally, don't forget to look good, feel good, and do good. See you at the next episode. Bye, Money, here you go.